Breaking the Glass Show, Episode 5. So I am now inspired to complete and go through the pain of a 112-mile bike ride because I'm riding the bike of my friend who beat cancer. So I found a way to not make it about me and to make it about everyone else, and specifically my son, my friend, and then uh, the folks that were on social media to follow me. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass Show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode five, Glass Breakers. I hope you're ready for another awesome and amazing episode. But first, I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. That'll get me into the new and noteworthy section. I think if I get 50 reviews, I can make it there. I'm at about a dozen right now and they keep coming in strong. I'm looking at them and I see and I want to thank especially Dwell A1. Thanks, AD. Callie Gal 951-909. V. McLean, Vic and BR. And Stacy0925. Those are the last five reviews I've seen. And I want you to please keep them coming in. Go right now. Search for TQ Breaking the Glass. You'll find me. Then leave me a rating and a review. Now I have a new segment I want to start. And I'm calling it Proud of My People. You see, I have the privilege to do long interviews with some pretty interesting people. But what I know is there are lots of folks out there who are also breaking the glass. And you listening are proud of them. So what I want you to do is tell me about them and I'll share them on a segment on this show. So all you have to do is go to breakingtheglass.com. You'll see a little red button on the left hand side that says send a voicemail. Just click it. Use your microphone. Leave your voicemail with the person you're proud of and why you're proud of them and what they're doing. And I'll feature them on one of my future episodes. See, you're already proud of them. And I, too, just want to be proud of my people. All those details, again, are at BreakingTheGlass.com. Now on to today's episode. Today, I speak to Otis Hooper. Otis does whatever he does, but he does it to the extreme. He didn't just do karate. He did it starting at six years old. He didn't just take classes. He taught classes in his dad's family business, a martial arts studio. He was also a successful Air Force pilot where he performed combat missions being deployed eight different times. Not only that, you'll hear how his life was changed when he was flying above the World Trade Center two days after September 11th. Now, he had an amazing nearly 20-year Air Force career, but while doing that, he felt like his body got a little out of shape. So just like all of us, he decided to get in shape, but he didn't do it halfway. Once he got into shape, he started doing fitness competitions to the point that he qualified to be in Mr. Olympia. That's the same competition that Arnold Schwarzenegger's in. Following that, he entered himself into the ultimate men's health guy competition. He did so well with his bodybuilding that he made it all the way to being one of the top three finalists in that competition on the Today Show. Now, most of us, this would be good for a lifetime. And remember, Otis, he's pushing and then passing 40 years old while he's doing this against guys that are much younger than him. But he didn't stop. He went on to do a full Ironman triathlon. That's where you swim over two miles. You bike for over 100 miles. And then you finish up all that with a full marathon. And then he entered himself into the American Ninja Warrior competition 
because he wanted to see how far his body could go. And you would think, surely he's done now. But no, Otis is moving into the acting world. He scored a spot as a detective in an upcoming movie beside the likes of 50 Cent and Gerard Butler. You know, the guy from 300. So this is just an amazing guy who I've known for over 20 years. And I think you're going to love to get to know him, too. So now, please enjoy this interview with Otis Hooper. So, Otis, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, TQ. Appreciate it. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you, man, and talking about the the dramatic change that you've made um, in your life physically, but also with, with things you're involved in uh, as we sit here and converse a little bit. Um, but first, before we get into depth about the change you've been through, let's back it up a little bit. Why don't you talk about how life came up? Let's do a lightning round background. Tell me a little bit about your coming up. Uh, what was life like growing up for you? What are kind of the highlights um, as you made your way through your young life? Okay. Well, uh, let's see. I was I was raised, born and raised in Newport News, Virginia. Um, I'm 40 years old. And uh, I have one brother and one half sister. I was raised with my brother, who's uh, two years younger than me. And... Uh, Let's see. Our family business, my father uh, started a family business uh, called Hooper's Academy for Self-Protection. And what it was was a karate school. And so that was our family business was karate or taekwondo. And at six years old, I started taking taekwondo from my dad. Um, My brother followed along a couple years later. Hmm. And so going to elementary school and middle school instead of so we would take the school bus to school. And instead of taking the school bus home, our school bus would drop us off at the karate school. And we would spend our afternoons and evenings uh, with my dad teaching karate. And so at 12 years old, um, after uh, <laughs> a lot of training uh, and some, some tough lessons, a few, a few tears shed, uh, I earned my black belt. Wow. Uh, part, of that, part of that training was to teach others. And so in order to in order to earn the black belt, you had to go through a certain amount of hours of teaching and giving back. And so at 12 years old, I earned my black belt in Taekwondo. And then from 12 years old to 18, uh, my job uh, where I actually earned money (laughs) wasn't a lot of money, but I earned money was teaching. So I was a karate instructor from 12 years old to 18. Wow. Um, And I had a little little bit of change. Uh, I got to enjoy. uh my teenage years with a little bit of change that I earned. Um, but I taught karate from on Mondays all the way to Saturdays, six days a week. Wow. Um, so you're a part of your family. You're part of owning a business growing up. You also had the discipline of the martial arts. Those yes. have been pretty formative to your development. Oh, it was incredible. And so I got to see my father not only run a business, but struggle running a business. Mm. And that was really important for me to see every day. What was uh, important it, about it? Well, it was important because, I understood the sacrifice that needed to be made in order to advance. Uh, we all sometimes we all look at the, the the guys that are making you know millions and and hundreds of thousands and thousands and hundreds of dollars, but there's a there's there's a price you have to pay sometimes, right. and that comes in time because uh, time you can never get back. And so my father was able to involve my brother and I um, in the way he was able to provide for us. And so we were, we were all moving together forward, um, towards a goal as a one family unit. 
And uh, he put his his uh, a lot of time and effort into it. And so I was able to see that firsthand. And that was able to help me um, with the things that I wanted to do and, and, the, and the, the goals that I wanted to achieve in my own life. What's the what's one thing you took away in terms of mentality? I mean, so I did karate when I was uh, young as well. And I think a guy came to our school and told us, hey, you know, you guys could come take my classes. So I thought it was really cool and took the classes. And, you know, I did a lot of tournaments. I won trophies bigger than myself in some of the fighting tournaments or, or you know, the, the karate tournaments we had. Mm-hmm. And uh, but my dad was more like, you got to handle school. So when school got to be sort of overwhelming, I had to give that up and and uh, kind of always wish I had the chance to go through it. But I'm glad um, or I'm hopeful that my kids get to do that. Yeah. I know it brought me a lot of discipline, a lot of physical, individual self-courage for myself as a, as a young man. Um, what what kind of things for you do you think it developed in you doing that type of thing, the martial arts piece at such a young age? Well, I think the, you touched on it already. It, the number one thing is discipline. And it wasn't necessarily about – so I did all those things. I competed in tournaments. I did great, got lots of fun trophies. But it was really – I didn't realize – almost like if you remember the old Karate Kid movie. Yeah. Mr. Mar- Mr. Miyagi and, and Daniel, he taught him how to do the wax on, wax off, how to paint the fence, how to do those those what what Daniel thought were silly movements. But there was a purpose behind it all. And it wasn't about karate or about the punch or the movement. Uh, it was about teaching something much, much bigger than that. But he didn't get it until the very end when he had to defend himself and actually put it into motion. Right. So he to paint the fence. He blocked the punch. So a lot of times when I was growing up and now that I reflect back, I realized that the things that I was learning as a youth at six years old, 10 years old, 15 years old now apply to me as an adult. The discipline, the drive to continue on, even though it may get hard, uh, even though you may be feeling physical pain or emotional pain, uh, the determination and drive to dig deep and keep going. Hmm. Yeah. Why? Well, so I'm I'm sure uh, it it made a big difference in the next phase of your life, which was where we met at the Air Force Academy. So, yes, it was uh, it was instrumental, really. And I'll, <laughs> so I so as I don't know, a couple years prior to uh, graduating high school, I I was never really um, I, I never the military was was interesting to me, but it was never something that flying airplanes. It was never a dream of mine. That was actually something my brother was really interested in doing was flying airplanes. Okay. But, uh, it was introduced to me through a karate tournament. So my father brought myself and my brother to a karate tournament in Denver, Denver, Colorado. And he, (laughs) he planted a seed by saying, Hey, let's go to this tournament. And we enjoyed skiing, snow skiing. So he said, let's go to this tournament. But Let's visit the Air Force Academy. I was in 11th grade. Let's visit the Air Force Academy. Then we'll go skiing. So he planted a seed uh, of, <laughs> of visiting this school that I would eventually attend. And, uh, and then I, I thought it was pretty neat. I looked at uh, from the outside. It was, it was cool to see these guys marching and, and, uh, and the, the pretty buildings. Uh, <laughs> little did I know what we would experience <laughs> four years into it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I did apply. I got accepted. And and I off I went in June of 1995 uh, to the Air Force Academy. And for me, the first going through basic training, um, you know, it was, a, it was 
to be honest with you, it was it wasn't too much of a shock. Uh, it was very similar to some of the training that my that I was able to that I experienced as you know in the karate school. So that was a physical piece. Um, it touched a little bit on the mental, but where I was really challenged and where I was really able to tap in um, was my first the first half of my first semester at the academy. How's that? <laughs> well, I tried to do everything, and I tried to be good at everything. So I was a you know I was an athlete in high school, and so I thought I could be an athlete at the academy and learn military knowledge and do my academics. And I, I was unable to balance everything. What sports did you play? Well, I didn't play any 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 collegiate sports, to believe it or not. Um, I was pretty small, if you remember the TQ. <laughs> thin, really real thin, dude. I was I was thin, man. I was about 140 pounds. I don't even remember how tall I was, but I actually hit a growth spurt. And I was a, I was a late bloomer. I hit a growth spurt. Uh, but all the all the uh, intercollegiate sports that we played. So we we stayed busy playing rugby, soccer, um, um, uh, marching on the on the terrazzo, doing all kinds of extracurricular activities along with our heavy course load of twenty to twenty one credits at a time. I was unable to really balance things and keep my academics um, on par and where they need to be. So the shock came in about October when we got our midterm reports, and <laughs> it wasn't looking good. It was not looking, and I'll share this with you. But I, I had a one point two five, man. Eek. <laughs> a one point two five. Yeah, I mean, I was a, hey, I was a excellent, I was an excellent student. Graduated number eleven in my high school class, right. first semester of the academy. I was low twos, maybe two four two something, which for me was like. I don't, it, could, it might as well have been a, a zero point zero. So I, I get you, man. It was hard adjusting yeah. to that life. So I, so someone at, at, at school, uh, a senior had me, and he saw my grade. He was the, uh, squadron commander at the time. Cadet squadron commander. He kind of had his eye on me for the first couple months. And he heard that I got a, the, the report that I did. And this was my first wake up call literally and figuratively. He told me to report, uh, outside, uh, of the hallway in full uniform at 0600, 6 a.m. I overslept. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> I overslept. And uh, he knocked on the door. I was asleep. I rushed, got up, dressed, came outside five minutes later. And he pulled me in the hallway. He didn't yell at me, but he had in his hand a trophy. And it was for, I don't remember the, the trophy, but it was for distinguished flying, uh, achieving something that really no one had achieved at the academy before. And, and he, he won that. It was his trophy? It was his. And he happened to be African-American. He also happened to be my squadron commander. Wow. And as you know, there are, there are not a whole lot of African-American um, cadets. Right. At the academy. So in his class, he was class of 96, maybe 40 or 50. Yeah. Out of a, yeah. Out of a so, thousand something people and maybe like 40 or 50. Maybe. And so I had a lot of respect for him and the position that he had, regardless of his of his race or background. And what he talked to me about was the importance of. Of giving everything you have. And and focusing on what it is that you can do. And 
and really keeping your eyes on the prize. And he he was disappointed in me. Yeah. And it 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 really touched me. And the last thing I wanted to do was to disappoint him even further. Right. And so at that moment, it stopped becoming about myself. Hmm. That moment, he said, what would your father think? What would mm-hmm. your mother think? And everything changed right then. I decided that I was going to elevate uh, my my academics and shift my 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 uh, interest in athletics for the moment uh, to, in order to continue on at the Air Force Academy. Not for me, but for my family, for people that were above me, my mentors, my peers, and folks that were going to be coming behind me. It right. shifted becoming about me, and it became about something else greater than myself. Hmm. That's good. And did that help turn things around? Because people people get serious a lot of times, but some of them still don't make it through. And, and you did. How were you able to, to turn that around? Absolutely. So it, it, the way I was able to change it was I started with what I could what I could change. And that's me. So I decided that the, the, the one class that was killing me was chemistry, chemistry 141. And so I decided that I would carry my chemistry book with me everywhere I went. Right. No matter what, it was yellow. It was a, it was a yellow chemistry book, and I carried that book everywhere with me for three months straight. Now, did you open the book everywhere you took it, or did you just have it in your have it in your bag, thinking it would sneak through? I opened through? the book okay. every time I had a spare time. The book was open. I went to EI, which is is called extra instruction. So I I spent a lot of time with my professors after before class, during, and after. Right. Uh, Everywhere I went and what that did for me, unintentionally, what it did for me was it reminded me of my goal. It reminded me and and I aligned what it is that I wanted to do long term with any spare moment, any spare minute that I had. And then when people started to try to or pull me away by going out, hanging out, that book was under my arm. Right. They saw it. We started talking about it. They became now what I've learned is the alignment, the, the process of alignment became very important. They started to help me. They said, oh, well, I have this this way of studying or uh, I've I've gone through that that course. Let me give you a, a little nugget that I've that I've learned. Yeah. And people started to be to join me and to get on my side and to help me through it. So I didn't do it alone. I did it with the help of others. But I started with me first by putting the book under my arm and walking around with it every single day. Right now. That's that's a, a good motivational piece from a tactical standpoint. If you were to if you were talking to somebody else who's either at a difficult college university or at one of the military academies and you were to say, listen, man, this is how I um, I succeeded, you know, and, and like for me, <clears throat> I started off like you, like I said, low, you know, to something and ended mm-hmm. up distinguished graduate from my major. And a lot of it for me was just like you said, buckling down. And developing right. a disciplined schedule for myself to stay focused on getting the work done. It was also limiting, like you said, ex- extracurricular activities. What kind of things would you say were the top two or three things you did that allowed you to be able to go from just struggling to stay there and potentially getting kicked out to being able to graduate successfully uh, from the academy? First thing I did was my time. My time management was horrible. So it's not something I did, but it's something that I asked for. So I, I, I called my father and I told him the problem I was having. And he distilled it down very quickly to the fact that you are not organized with your time. 
So he sent me a, a, a ledger and it was essentially a, a day planner. And I planned, he, he wrote out the first two weeks each day, hour by hour, hmm. on how I would spend the, my time. Um, and so along with my chemistry book, I had my day planner with me and it worked and I was able to organize my time and not waste time that. And so I took that, that same book and the next year I bought that book again for the next year. I did it for four years. So TQ, I have four books that have every minute and every hour of how I spent my time at the Air Force Academy Wow! in my closet right now. So I can tell you what I did on any day. Um, because I wrote it down and I was effective with time management. That was the absolute number one thing that helped me first. And again, that starts with me. I have to do something for me. Then I reached out to others and I joined a couple groups that you were familiar with. Uh, and that's where you and I met Yeah, uh, the, uh, WLC way of life committee and listening to other people that were going through similar, maybe some similar struggles that had a similar background as me. Uh, we were able to talk about not necessarily what's happening at school, but really just connecting with each other on a personal level. Right. And way of life committee for for to explain for others is like the black student union that you might call it. Some other universities or colleges. It's a minority um, support group, basically, to be able to help each other uh, empathize with one another and, and, and push each other to get through the through the place like the academy. Mm hmm. So we would meet, I forget the schedule we met, but we would meet, you know, on a schedule and it was great just to be able to have that escape to just be able to really connect with, with one another. Right. And through that medium, I was able to not only connect academically, uh, emotionally, spiritually in many different ways, but also it was a, a event when on the weekend when we were able to get out, um, and just kick it. It was, it was great to just kind of just take a time out and uh, hang out with some friends. Now, how did you how did you decide that you wanted to be a pilot? So you get through the academy and then, you know, you're going to you you perform well enough to get the opportunity to be a pilot. What mm -hmm. drove that in you? Well, uh, as you know, so at the academy, we all we have to take uh, some type of aviation class. So one of the classes that I took was was gliders. So I took a, a class on 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 gliding, soaring. And so that class entailed me going up in an airplane with no propeller and no propulsion system. And it was on purpose. They didn't send you up in no raggedy plane because, you know, they didn't <laughs> like you. It's a glider plane. They don't have propellers on purpose. Yeah. So I, <laughs> so we got pulled up in the air. You know, we disconnected the tow and uh, and then we're, we're gliding over the Rocky Mountains with a with an instructor pilot. That feeling was amazing hmm. to me. But I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do forever. Um, I was also interested in contracting and acquisitions, um, a lot of other things that the Air Force offered and some things that the Air Force didn't offer, um, maybe some more entrepreneurial um, adventures and just some different creative stuff that I wasn't quite sure how to go, how to, the best way to approach. But uh, the reason I became a pilot was I looked at the organization that I was that I was about to be a part of, and that was the Air Force. And I looked at where the some of the some of the most influential leaders were, and they, the ones that were at the top all were rated or were pilots. And I figured if I could start at the top, at, in their in their perspective, I could always veer off and do something different. Right. 
Um, and so that's why I decided to be a pilot. I wasn't, like I said in the beginning of our podcast here, uh, being a pilot was never my dream. My dream is to, my dream was to really um, inspire and influence. And so I felt that that was the best medium for me to do so, was to get that platform of being a pilot first and then branch off and do something else if that's what I wanted to do. Right. So that's why I became a pilot. Now, um, you, you, it sounds like this may be end up being a trend in your career. You kind of look and see where you can go to achieve the highest level and you shoot for that in whatever environment that you're in. Yes. And that started with when I was six years old. Yeah. Given it, give it everything you have in whatever it is you're doing, whether you, whether you are forced there, whether you, it doesn't matter. You, you give everything you have uh, 100% and then more. And and look for ways to not only give or do more, but then to give more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, it kind of has been a trend. I never really thought about it, but it, yeah, it, it kind of has been. What what is because not everybody makes it through pilot training, and for people that don't know, in terms of a, a, a racial mix, if you go into a, you know what what happens for the, and you can explain this to people is you get out of school, um, and in whatever period of time you go to pilot training to learn for X amount of time before you go to actual plane that you're in. So if you can kind of walk us through that process and then kind of let us know, okay, so Ada, how many people in the class, how many of them end up being minorities? And then just what's the experience like going through pilot training in general? So pilot training, uh, big picture is a, just over a year. And there's essentially two, two phases of pilot training. Uh, it's uh uh, the first six months is where you really learn the basics and the fundamentals of flying. And all of us are grouped together. There's about 20 to 25 in a class. We'll, we'll say 20, 20, we'll say 20 in a class, uh, 20 in a class. We learned the fundamentals of flying and we all started in my, in my year, which was 1999. We all started in the T 37, which they no longer fly. Uh, they're flying the T six now, but it's a trainer plane. And, uh, we do that for about, Four or five months, we get grades uh, daily uh, on the on the maneuvers that we we are training to and perform. And then at about month five or six, uh, you have what's called a track selection. And at that point, the class essentially splits in half. Uh, half go to the fighter track when you're going to go fly fighter airplanes like an F-15 or an F-16. The other half go to the heavy track, and they are going to be flying uh, maybe a C-17 or a KC-135, a tanker airplane. So I went the heavy track. And the Is that reason what you, I, okay, good. Is that what you wanted to do? It, not at the time, no. Uh, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, I, I really wasn't sure. But I was, doing, I was doing okay all the way through pilot training. I wasn't doing great. I was doing okay. But then during formation, uh, when we learn how to fly our airplanes uh, very close to one another, within three feet apart, it's called wingtip formation. That's the very last uh, six-month period. I was really good at formation, and I really enjoyed that. And that's more what fighters do. Yeah. And so as I did that, I thought, hmm, maybe this fighter thing would be kind of fun. Uh, but I talked to some guys, and I, I kind of looked at the fighter pilots, and I, I saw that it was very uh, physically challenging, which I was happy to do. I was only 22 years old. But I also thought long-term. I'm like, man, do I want to be doing that when I'm 35, 40 years old, pulling nine G's, putting my body under that kind of pressure? 
And and for people who may not know, that's like you may make oh. a turn in a plane that's nine times the weight of gravity pushing down on your body. Right. So it 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 sounds it's like riding a roller coaster every day of your life. Yeah. To your, so the, the most violent roller coaster ever. Um. So I wasn't quite sure what it is I wanted to do, but because of just kind of because of the way things worked out, uh, as far as my pilot training went, I ended up going the heavy track, uh, considering all those things. And it worked out great for me. What? So when you're in pilot training, if you're going to succeed <laughs> and, and, and get your choice, what are some important skills that are necessary to be successful at pilot training? Again, time management. You, our days are minimum 12 hour days, hmm. minimum. Um, they start every morning with a briefing. We talk about what we're going to do. Uh, it's, and we, we start with a stand up, which is a, a high pressure environment. You're standing in front of the rest of your peers and your, and your instructors. And they give you a scenario. The jet is on fire. You've lost your right engine. You have the airplane, Lieutenant Hooper. What do you do? And do you have like a book you can refer while you're asking, answering these questions? No, it's from memory. So everything is from the top of your head. It's just like you're in an airplane. You have the jet, put the fire out, get everybody on, on the ground safely. So those kinds of that kind of pressure, you know, every single day that's going to happen every single day. And you don't know if you're going to get called on. So you have to be ready. Yeah. So one of the things that I had to take away again was understand when you go in expectation management, your time, if you want to be successful, you need to limit your extracurricular activities. Hmm. Matter of fact, eliminate them. Don't, don't limit, eliminate, uh, and dedicate yourself for one full year to being the best, uh, student pilot that you can be. That's big. Yeah. You talk about giving back, but you're saying for a year, let all that go. Absolutely. If you want to be successful, if you want to be half a halfway decent pilot, go have fun on the weekend, go have yeah. fun during the week. But if you want to be good, eliminate period. And that's called focus, focus, focus your, be intent, do it with an intent. Don't go in halfway. Uh, and so that's the best, that's the single most important piece of advice I could give is, is managing your time because you're going to run out of it. No matter what, how are you able, you, though, to memorize all the things that you needed to do? Like what? And then maintain the pressure. What is it about you that helped you know the stuff you need to know and not succumb to the pressure of the stand up or pressure in the cockpit while you're flying and are those types of things? I look at. So when you look at a cockpit, it's always it's always fun to me to bring people in cockpits, because when you walk into the airplane, into a cockpit, you look around and you see a million, what looks like a million buttons, buttons and switches and lights. Yeah. But guess what? I don't touch all those buttons at once. I, <laughs> I touch one button at one time. Right. So what you have to do in pilot training is focus on what, look around you. What's the environment? What is the most, what is the, what are the three buttons that are the most important today that are that are going to kill you. And what are the three things that you can do today that you can mitigate that threat? Hmm. And those are the things that I would focus on. I would, I wouldn't try to focus on everything. I would focus on three things and know them as best as I can. Yeah. And the next day I would focus on three different things and a little bit at a time. Right. So we're, we're, 
we're, we're just chopping it down a little bit at a time. When I go back a month later, I now know, you know, 990 or 90 things about the airplane that I didn't know when I first started. Right. Um, and you do that repetitively. And over time, uh, you now have mastered that airplane. Yeah. And that's, that's really the, the, what's helped me. And I did that at the Air Force Academy uh, in each class. And I had to learn that when I was, was attacking chemistry with that book under my arm. I had, I had to figure out how could I break this, this monster down. And I just did it page by page. I did it in the airplane. I do it switch by switch. Yeah, you broke it down little to little pieces to make it more manageable. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Um, I read this great book by Atul Gawande. You may have heard of called The Checklist Manifesto. And uh, that he is a, a surgeon himself. And they were trying to figure out how to limit um, the number of deaths that occur, accidental deaths that occur in surgeries around the world. And mm-hmm. one of the places he went to determine what to do for doctor's offices was to pilots because apparently, and you can clarify this, but pilots have checklists for everything, but it's not mm-hmm. a checklist of a thousand things. It's a checklist of nine things for the specific issue. And you memorize that checklist and it can get you through a certain problem. So going step by step in little pieces like you're talking about can get you out of major emergencies because it's broken down into clear, specific, small, uh, achievable steps. That's right. And, and you have to be just like that surgeon, you have to be open to thinking through maybe step four to five, because in between the step, there may be some very, very, a very, very important piece of uh, information that you know that can solve the problem. But the process of going through the steps allows you to think through logically um, to insert whatever piece of maybe the key information is to actually help solve the problem. So there have been several times in airplanes in real world in combat where I've had a checklist and the checklist doesn't solve the problem. The plane is still going to crash and burn if I don't do something. Wow. I've had to insert some thinking and some some thought that I've, I've learned through the, just studying the airplane and knowing the airplane. And that actually saved my life and saved the lives of, of my my crew on board. But it wasn't in the checklist. It's now in the checklist, but it wasn't in the checklist before. <laughs> wow. So in the classes, again, just briefly, out of those 20 people, how many tend to be a minority person? In my experience, one. OK. And that's that's normal. Okay. If, if. And now you finish pilot training and you headed out to the Air Force to be a pilot. Um, what was that transition like and, and what are some of the highlights of your career? You talked about being in combat. What are some of the other highlights you have across your now almost 20 year career of, uh, of being a pilot in the Air Force? Well, let's see. After pilot training, I, I grad, so I, like I told you, I went the heavy track and I was awarded a KC-135 airborne refueler or fueling airplane. And so my job then is to uh, fly really high in the sky, 20, 30,000 feet in the, in the air. And almost like be a flying gas tank. So other airplanes would fly up to me and we would connect our airplanes together going 300 miles an hour, 400 miles an hour. And I would take the gas and transfer it from my airplane into their airplane um, through what looks like a telephone pole. Wow. Uh, It's a very technical maneuver uh, and it requires a lot of intense focus uh, for 15 to 20 minutes. on my end and on the receiver end, whoever's receiving the gas. And usually it's at night. Uh, and usually it is, uh, 
some high intense um, environment. So that was my my job was to fly KC-135, and that I got that assignment in uh, September of 2000. What happens then is you go and you learn how to fly the that specific airplane, that platform that you were awarded. So for six months, I go off and learn how to fly the KC-135. Uh, in March, I go to my assignment out in Kansas at McConnell Air Force Base, and I go on my first deployment to Saudi Arabia. And it was for 30 days. It was protect, to protect the southern border uh, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. And I get back. Uh, it was a, a great experience. I learned a lot. Uh, but I was still a second lieutenant. I uh, just kind of learned the ropes. And September 11th, 2001 hit. Wow. And so I was six months in the squadron, second lieutenant, didn't really know anything. And uh, the call came from to my telephone at home. Uh, and of course, we all remember where we were and what was happening during that time. Oh, yeah. Turn the news. Oh. And I had an hour to report to my unit. Mm. I didn't know what was going on. So um, I rushed, grabbed all my gear, drove 100 miles in the base, uh, 100 miles an hour in the base. And uh, we all got together, listened to our commander, um, gave us instructions. And just like I had studied in, in the Air Force Academy, what I thought, uh, we all went into an alert facility and came up with some plans on how we were going to proceed forward. So my next, uh, the next time I flew was a couple days later, and I found myself over the World Trade Center, uh, orbiting um, at four o'clock in the morning. Oh my gosh! Smoke still coming out of the World Trade Center. Uh, that was the first moment that, for me, it really hit home all of the things that I had been preparing for, all the training. Um, it just really was magnified when I looked down and I'm literally doing circles over the World Trade Center. And our job was to be a, provide fuel for the fighters that were circling New York City. At the oh, time my gosh. To protect them. And so it hit home then. Um, and what was that like? Like, what was it like? I mean, I was I was in Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles at the time. I remember getting the call. We had to do things like you were normally at a desk and you all of a sudden got assigned to be a security guard, a security, not security guard, but a security policeman Mm -hmm. as a normal acquisitions officer. I did contracts and business stuff. And some of my colleagues ended up having to hold a gun Mm -hmm. and protect the base because we didn't know if people were going to come crash their planes or, or try to, you know, do bombing runs into our bases. Um, but you were right there at ground zero flying above the world trade center, man. What in the world were you thinking at that time? Well, it was it was uh, incredibly humbling. We all had specific jobs that we trained for, but everybody, everybody, every citizen, every military person, all of us came together uh, in those few months, those first few months and did whatever we needed to do. Whatever was asked of us, we did it because it was it wasn't about us. It wasn't about our job. It was about something much greater. None of us knew what that purpose was at the time. But we just knew we had to do something and we could do we had to do whatever we could do with what we had. And I had an airplane. You had you had a base to protect with your weapon. We did whatever we had to do. Other civilians that I people that I've spoke to that had nothing to do with the military. They raised their hand and they joined the military. What was going through your head, though, flying above the World Trade Center? What were you thinking about? Don't screw up. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, literally, I, I was I was nervous. Yeah. I didn't want to set anything up. And I mean, the airplanes were zipping below us. It was four o'clock in the morning. I was tired. We were the KC-135 is an old airplane. Uh, so it was built in the 50s. And so uh, our autopilot kept clicking off at four in the morning. So that's a kind of a standard thing in the 135, unfortunately. So a lot of times we're in an orbit and or we're connected to another airplane. The autopilot would keep clicking off. And it's in in that airplane. There's no there's no bells or whistles to tell you that it's it's turning off. So uh, I was on point uh, and everything went well um, during that those that first I think it was I was there for three weeks uh, orbiting. Wow. Um, so it was, I just wanted to do perform well, all yeah. my training. All I wanted to do was do my job and focus on my job and nothing else. If you're telling somebody uh, today, based upon your experience leading all these different teams, what's the two or three things that you say, because I learned this, I was able to be an effective leader. And that's something that you should take away as well. The first thing I would say and, and that I try to do is listen. And and that starts before you get overseas in combat or before you get in the in the in the board meeting. Can you tell me a time whenever like listening in the combat arena as much as you can talk about it? Tell me a time when you use that and it was really effective to you accomplishing the mission. So one of the one of the missions that I alluded to was was when we had a, a, a malfunction with our airplane, a, a really a, a massive malfunction uh, with our boom. And the boom is the telephone pole that actually uh, extends out and transfers the gas. Yeah. Well, normally the, the always the person that operates that boom is a, usually a young enlisted person. Um, sometimes they have a lot of experience. I mean, they could be 40, 50 years old or they could be brand new. Uh, 20 years old, right out of right out of high school, out of basic training or technical school. Uh, so I listen to the experience. I, I want to get understand um, that critical piece because that's if, if if that guy can't deliver or that young lady can't deliver, then we fail in our mission. Yeah, and that's our critical critical point right there. So he he or she is very important uh, in their experience level and their confidence level. So I had a, a young man uh, who was experienced a couple couple years, but his confidence uh, was very high and his knowledge uh, was extremely high. His technical knowledge it shouldn't have been as high as it was for the the short amount of time he was uh, a boom operator, and so it it was extremely impressive to me. And and we talked a lot uh, in the airplane and thirteen fourteen hour missions prior to that. We talked a lot on the ground. And so I wanted to hear his experiences. So as we got in the air and we were uh, our airplane malfunctioned, uh, we were not able to maneuver that that boom. He was not able to maneuver it. Two F-16s approached us uh, after doing a bombing run and destroying a a convoy of trucks in Iraq. Uh, It was three or four o'clock in the morning. They needed gas. Otherwise, they were going to run out of fuel because that was not on their planned uh, planned route. Wow. So they called us. They asked us if we could give them gas. My boom operator, uh, who had only been doing the job for two years, said, uh, Captain, I think I was a captain at the time. Captain Hoover, we had a major problem. Uh, I cannot transfer gas. He went through the technical reasons why. And he said, but there might be a way I can do it. 
And I said, all right, so understand, I've already cleared these, these jets in to, they're approaching us at 500 miles an hour, uh, screaming, you know, close to the speed of sound to come get gas. If they come up to us and we're not able to give them gas, they run out of fuel. Oh no. <clears throat> over Iraq. And this is in 2003, 2004. And so between the three of us, we came up with an alternate solution uh, to be able to put the boom down, transfer the gas. Uh, I cleared the co-pilot off. He went to the back and he helped the boom operator um, perform the maneuver. Um, but it was not in the checklist. It wasn't in the books. But we, the three of us collectively uh, were able to come up with a solution based on the fact that I had enough confidence in his experience because we debriefed before and we talked about what he had done before and what he had gone through. I also knew I had an experienced co-pilot uh, and we were able to give the, give the F-16s the gas. Uh, once they cleared off, we still had to figure out a way to bring the boom up. Cause, and as much as you can talk about it, you're saying like it didn't operate how it normally was supposed to. So you had to kind of rig it to get out, to give them fuel Right. And then, but that rigging, since it wasn't normal operation, you had to figure out a way to rig it to get back in. That's right. So usually it's, when you look at an airplane, there's nothing hanging underneath an airplane, except if anything's hanging, it's going to be the three wheels, the right. gear, the gear. But we had a pole hanging from the bottom of our airplane, a pole. That you didn't know so how we, to get back in. We could not get that thing back in. And so we can't land. So yeah, the, the airplane, the fighters got their, their fuel, but we had no way of getting that pole up. So once we got the gas, we solved that problem. We had to figure out how to get the pole up so we could land. Otherwise, we land with a pole scraping the ground, causing a lot of sparks and fire, and we're flying with a tank full of gas. Yikes. Um, so long story short, we were, we were able to uh, come up with an alternate solution. We got the, the, uh, the boom stowed or the, the pole up. We landed safely and without incident. And it just so happens that the crew that I had – happened to be all African-American. Wow. Um, so uh, there was a couple stories written about us uh, during that time. And uh, it was just, it was a really, really cool moment and something that I can now reflect back on. And what was cool about it? Everything. The, the fact that we, the answer wasn't in the book, number one. Uh, number two, the fact that we were able to give these guys gas. And yeah. And, okay. and you were like, this sounds, um, it sounds kind of uh, uh, like it's hard to appreciate. You weren't just giving them gas. You're giving them life. If they ran out right. of gas, they, they crashed their plane in Iraq in the middle of a war. And it was the hot, hot, hot part of the war that that was happening too. Exactly. So we were able to, it, it, yeah, it, it, by doing that and taking the calculated risk that we did based on uh, the experience level of my enlisted boom operator, uh, we were able to make it create an impact uh, and possibly save lives. Did you ever see those pilots again? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Oh, the F-16 pilots? Yeah. No, never saw them again. Never saw them again. But that's part of the that's part of the job that yeah. happens every day. It's not something I do, but Air Force pilots every day and Navy, Army, Marines. It's just what we do. And it's a part of our mission is to just perform your job the best of your ability uh, so that somebody else can perform their job the best of their ability. Otis, you had a a long, you've had a long distinguished career, and and we may just have you on a a couple of more times, man, to talk through some of the things you learned as an Air Force officer and a pilot, um, and the experience that you've had. 
Um, but you, you, you've done many, many things in your life. And, and now you've gotten to a place where fitness has become a major part of who you are. And, and as we approach that, you know, 40 year age, like you're saying, you're transitioning to other things that you're interested in doing in addition to this uh, pilot career that you've had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talk about what happened as many things you're doing in the, in the Air Force that made you say, now on top of that, I'm going to be an amazing world-class athlete. I mean, <laughs> how, how did that transition go down? Well, it again, it didn't really start with um, me wanting to be this this super athlete, as you described. What was happening was I was so focused. I was out of balance. I was so focused on my military career and flying and um, and and doing all these 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 big things in my career, I allowed my personal uh, fitness level to to decline. <laughs> we'll put it put it lightly. And I started, I was I got out of shape, and and I had I, you know I had three kids. Now I have four kids. Uh, life just happened, man. And it, and it was I was thirty eight years old, I think thirty seven, thirty eight. Uh, I was weighed the most that I ever weighed in my life. I was 238 pounds. Yeah. And normally I'm sit at about 200. So I was 40 pounds overweight and I just, I wasn't feeling good about myself personally. Um, and I didn't look horrible, but I, I also knew I could be better. Yeah. Simple, simply. And so I tried, what I tried to do in 2014 was I said, okay, well shoot, everything else I've done, I've just worked really hard. So I work really hard. I know I'm not supposed to drink soda and and um, and eat fast food. So I'll cut those things out. So I cut those things out and I started running really hard and I ended up dropping 40 pounds. Uh, but when I looked in the mirror, I still uh, wasn't happy with what I saw um, because I had a lot of other things that were that were brewing on the inside of me, not yeah. on the outside, inside okay. that I hadn't resolved quite yet. And not to get too personal, but I was going through a transition uh, in my life. Um, and uh, so I went from I got divorced. I'll just share that with you. So I got divorced and going through that, that transition. It was it was a shock to me. Yeah. And a lot of us have gone through that through something shocking uh, in their life that they may not have processed all the way through. And so I let my physical health decline while focusing on trying to make that transition. Yeah. And so. Once I recognized that, I said, "Okay, let's get let's get a hold of this." And so, what when I tried to do it myself without asking for help, I I was I was successful in losing the forty pounds, but I wasn't successful at uh, of transforming everything else that goes along with being physically fit yeah. and mentally and emotionally fit. So I said, "Let me try this again. Let me start over again." That's when I reached out to one of our friends, uh, Robert Giles. He was a, an Air Force Academy classmate of mine, uh, class of 99. And I said, Rob, man, I saw what you did. And we connected on Instagram, on social media. Yeah, and Rob, so people don't, if you can look up up at, a, I think he's Team, Team Giles. Yep, Team On social Giles. media. Yep. And this guy, it was just, you see him on Instagram and he's just ripped. So you right. you saw that on Instagram and thought, well, maybe he can help me out. Right. So I said, not only, yeah, exactly. I said, well, man, I don't, I don't need to get to that level, Rob, but just do give me the starter kit. And that was the beginning of my physical fitness journey. 
was was uh, making that commitment to change. And part of it was knowing that I could be better, but it was also part of it was trying to be a better father for my kids yeah. who were four boys. Now, when you were doing this thing, tell me what goes on in your mind. Like a lot of people get started, you know, early in the year, January, February, maybe they're trying to get themselves a Valentine's Day date. So you do a couple push-ups. Mm-hmm. But by March, they're done. Um, you know, you kept going for an entire year to the point that you had some pretty amazing accomplishments. Um, right. What what was it in your mind that kept you going over that time? What was it in your, your motivation? What drove you to keep pushing well, it like a, that? It's kind of been a theme. So I, 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 like everybody else, I had a New Year's resolution, January 1st, to start. I started, did a couple push-ups, did a couple sit-ups, fell off. Martin Luther King Day, I connected with Rob. 30 days later, I still hadn't done anything. February 13th, I committed to Rob. And the difference was I made a commitment to someone else. And I and it became he he invested a lot of time in me. And that someone else is Rob. Yes. And he took the time to build a plan. He took the time to mentor me, if you will, on every Sunday when I would send him my pictures and my updates. And it became less about me and more about serving and and doing for something or someone else. It was not about me at that time. I didn't want to waste my friend's time. I didn't want to waste the energy that he gave to me. And so, so having like that accountability really helped you out. Absolutely. And he he never pressured me. There was never a pressure. There was never a, a disappointment. I just knew, just like that guy that pulled me out in the hallway, he said to me at the Air Force Academy, he he reminded me that it, I'm not here for you. You're not. I'm not Otis. You're not here for Otis. You're here for other reasons. And so for me, it was being accountable to a friend uh, who invested in me. And he said, man, you're doing great. At, a, at the month and a half period in, and he said, "You ought to consider doing a men's physique show." Now, hold on, you hold on, hold on, hold on. Now, <laughs> now, what? So, I, I went through the process of you know starting the Atkins diet. I, I similarly wanted to get in shape. I had some some extra dimples and handles in places that they didn't belong, you know. Right. And 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 I started doing some push-ups. I found the seal workout where I did you know a certain number of push-ups. So I, so I started with I think just like fifteen push-ups. Mm-hmm. And I got to where I was doing like sets of 30, you know, six, seven sets of 30 every day. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't doing any men's physique competition. I mean, tell me about some of the the what when you were working out like that. What are some of the important parts that you have to do to be able to get in the type of shape you were getting in? What what are some of the key diet pieces you think you needed to do to to really keep it tight? How do you do that? Well, I'll, I'll that's what everybody usually wants to talk about. But if you really want the true answer, the, the real answer is it starts mentally. Okay. You have to, you have to change the way you think about fitness and about yourself first. How's that? And what do you have to change? The, everything, right? So I knew that I, I understood that as I went through the process and now it didn't come naturally. It came over time because I listened to myself and what was actually making me give the most output in the gym and what the days that I would do great with my diet and stay on point, what I decided to do was every single day when I woke up, I needed to start my day with that momentum. And so when my feet touch the floor, when I get out of bed, I continue down to the floor and I do one push up and one sit up. 
I commit to that one push up and one sit up every day. Yeah. And I, I've done it forever since I've started February 13th of 2015. What happens is when you're on the ground, if you commit to one push up and one sit up, you'll probably do more. And I, that's, that's what I did. Right. So I would do 10 push ups. The next day I decided, all right, I'm going to add one push up every day. Then I did 11 and now I'm up to 200. So I do 200 push-ups and 200 sit-ups every single day, and that's how I start my morning. Hmm. So while I'm down there, I said, "Well, man, I, I'm kind of getting bored. I don't want to, I don't want to waste my time. I can also listen to something." So I started listening to motivational YouTube videos, and the the folks that I started listening to were Eric Thomas, uh, Tony Robbins, Les Brown. Right. I mean, every just just and, and so that was my music. Those, that was my music and my theme. So I would start my day, 15 minutes of my day, with uh, positive momentum and motivation. That momentum would carry into my morning, and I would start thinking positively. I would start thinking uh, how I can create action. So when I go into the gym, I started to change my music. Instead of listening to normal music that I would listen to that was enjoyable for me, I decided that, well, let me. I felt great after my morning push-up and sit-up routine. I started listening to them. So when I have headphones in, I'm not listening to normal music in the gym. I'm listening to motivational speakers. Right. Uh, so that's one way I changed uh, in the gym. You were basically uh, reprogramming yourself. That's correct. With things that are inspirational to push you through the work you had to do. That's right. Uh, so that's where not, you know, so the diet's important. That's the science piece behind it. So my discipline from martial arts and the military and the academy and pilot training carried over into the fitness world where uh, I followed the diet like a checklist. Yeah. But it was everybody. We can all say that, but I needed something more. And that was being accountable to uh, something that was greater than myself, which was at that point, uh, my friend Rob. So I think it's important to understand that like having accountability is key. Doing it on your own is one thing, but if you want to have long lasting success, one of the key points that I think a takeaway is to have somebody that's like a workout partner or an accountability partner to push you through that piece. Mm -hmm. And you also, you did it publicly too. Like you, you put your stuff, not just uh, mm -hmm. with Rob, but you started to post things online. What made you add that piece to the pie? Well, I didn't, I didn't post it online for six months. I posted nothing online. So this was all for me and and my, I needed to go through this process for me and it wasn't public knowledge. So everything was private. I kept everything private on social media. Hmm. Uh, so when why, Rob, why, why would you do that? Because it had, I didn't see the value of it. I didn't see the value at that time of put, of, of sharing anything that I was doing. I didn't, I, it was, just, I just needed to, I just wanted to do better. Be better. for you and your family. That was it, man. It was for me and my kids and my family. And, the, and maybe I could feel better about, you know, just everything that I was going through. And so at month two, uh, Rob suggested this, 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 uh, men's physique competition, and I said, dude, I am not getting on stage in a bikini. That's <laughs> not happening, brother. And he goes, no, man, it's it's different. You you wear swimming trunks. So you wear board shorts on stage and you're on stage for 15 seconds and then you, you come off. And so I said, all right, man, you know what? I'm almost 40 years old. Why not? Let me give it a shot. It's a goal. And I, and I said, I, I'll give it I'll, – I'll try to uh, accomplish this goal before I turn 40. Having the goal – this is really important – establish – a goal that is somewhat scary to you pushed me in the gym to give everything I had 
And that is the moment that everything switched for me. When I, when I set a goal with an end date, I knew I had to deliver on that day. Right. And that was very, very important for me. And I noticed an immediate change the next day when I walked into the gym. I had a goal and I didn't want to embarrass myself <laughs> on stage looking, looking silly. Yeah. Standing against everybody else. But I didn't know what everybody else was. And that's kind of one of the beauties of it is I ignored everybody else because I wasn't on social media like that. Hmm. I was only thing I was in, in, only thing I was concerned about was giving 100 percent. That's it. And now you did it to the level that you did pretty well in these competitions. How had that had that t- talk about how that turned out? So I, my first competition, I won. I was 38 years old. I, I won my old, the, the the age division that I was in, which was Masters, 35 so and up. What's Matt? Okay, old man over 35. Okay. It's the old guy division, right? So I entered in the old guy division and I entered into the everybody division. It's called Open. So it's I'm competing with 18-year-olds and up. And that's the Open division. That's the, that's the competitive one. TQ, I won that one too. <laughs> I won, now, I won hey, the you whole know, this is the first time that I like my thought was you just won the old man one. You mean you won the like the the everybody competition too? And then I won the novice division, the guys that are new at the sport, and then I won the division where you your very first time. I won four divisions and then I won the overall championship. Wow. Which so, surprised the mess out of me. So right? you entered a fitness you, you worked out for you. You train and stuff accountable to to Rob as well as just for your own family, your own development. Right. Then you enter into a, a competition for men's physique. You know, like you're like up there like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, flexing right. and stuff like that. That's and exactly you right. pretty much sweep the whole competition, it sounds like. That's what I did. I swept everything. And so because I swept everything and I, I it was undeniable uh, uh, when I was standing on stage um, and I I was. I was surprised myself. I did not know what to expect, what to think. I didn't know what the other competitors would look like. I just knew I literally gave everything I had. Yeah. And the night before, and this is for, for a lot of men's physique competitors and guys that go through this. Um, if you feel the day before that you don't even have to compete the next day, cause it's not about the competition. It's about the process. If you can, if you go through the process and you give everything you have to the process, the end result doesn't matter. Yeah. Normally, the end result is blows your mind. It's not even something you can comprehend. And that I couldn't I didn't even have to compete because I went through the process and I I delivered with everything that I had. And you mean the process of getting to the point of actually doing the competition? That's correct. Yeah. You know, I think um, the more I talk to folks, the more I hear people who are performing at a high level. Um, It's like everybody probably has seen that picture of. uh uh, Michael Phelps in the Olympics swimming, looking forward. And there's that guy who's in second place swimming, looking at Michael Phelps. And, and you are just the people who are really successful. Maybe you look at the competition to figure out, you know, what are good techniques and training and things like that. But your focus isn't them. Your focus is doing the best that you can for yourself and and ignoring the haters, as we say, Mm -hmm. to be able to, uh, and then just doing your best and whatever the results are, you live with them, win, lose or draw. That's right. And that's exactly what I did. What I allowed, what was great for me was that I trusted my, if you will, my mentor in this case, which was Rob Giles. Yeah. I trusted yeah. him to do all the looking around for me. 
I didn't, that was not my concern. My job, my only job was to get everything that I have. His job was to do all the other stuff. And whatever that other stuff was, he didn't have to do a whole lot in this case. But it, he was kind of looking around, making sure I had applied for the right, uh, the right uh, categories and, and different things. But my job was to deliver and deliver the best that I could. Yeah. And I was not social media at all, at all, really. I mean, I was, I was on there for my family, but I was private. So the way that I can transition here to the next piece is the way that I was able to. So I, I had fun. It was a fun experience. Um, it's real fun when you win every single competition. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So it was a lot of and it was great because uh, the the eight time Miss Olympia was uh, hosted this hosted the show. OK. Miss Linda. And she would be like the, the the female version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. OK. Uh, back in the 90s and uh incredible woman very very professional and and uh just a great lady and we talked for a little bit and i got to hear some of her story and some of her struggle and it was inspiring to me and i decided to enter another competition uh, a couple of months later and i lost i lost big time Mm. but it was a national level competition okay the reason i entered it was i knew that i wasn't at the level of other the other national competitors, but I was willing to fail in order to see where I needed to be. Mm. I was willing to try something, even though I knew I wasn't going to have the the same success that I, I knew it, the same success prior, but I knew that I needed to go through that process to learn what I needed to learn Yeah, over in the quote unquote off season. And so the question for people is, are you entering into things that stretch you to a point where you may even know you're going to fail, but you'll learn something valuable in the process? That's exactly correct. And so in September, I went through that. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I got maybe 20th place or something, something like that. Uh, and I said, OK, I looked around. I said, I'm not that far from some of these guys. I see how the, the national show levels work. And uh, I saw I I came away with some opportunities. I said, well, shoot, this is an opportunity for me to work really hard in the offseason, come back again in 2016 and maybe have a do a competition with my wife. Maybe it's something that we can do together. I can help her train. Was she into fitness and uh, I guess bodybuilding and stuff like that? Not at all. (laughs) Oh, wow. Zero. Now, she's she's a fit person. She's incredible shape. but she saw what I went through and it wasn't just about physical. It was about everything else. And she saw the process that I went through and she was interested. Right. So she reached out to Rob and Rob designed a training plan for her. She started January 1st. Okay. And so this time you, you mentioned before you went through a divorce. So now you're remarried and, yes. and you're going through your wife with this exact same process of right. her trying to build from the ground up of getting into this whole fitness industry. Now, and I, and I will say that people say all the time, well, how can you be fit and still be a pilot? So I'm still flying at this time. Right. I'm, I'm still in the military and the guard. My wife, my current wife is, was in the military and she still is in the military as well. And during that time she was going through, uh, she was getting her doctorate in nursing. So there was a lot going on. And we had four boys. Wow. So we have kids getting a doctorate, being, serving in the military. So we had a lot going on. Yeah. He decided, I'm going to do <laughs> what you just did in January. So she started January 1st. How did you guys find the time? 
because people might listen to you and say, man, like me, I'm a stay at home dad. You know, I have three kids um, and uh, it, it's it's a struggle just to keep the diapers changed and clean, you know, and you're out there doing mis- uh, these men's fitness type of competitions. And then your wife's coming along doing the same thing. Um, how in the world do you keep all that together? Well, there's, there's two fundamental pieces that we've, we've kind of learned over the, over time and it, it's commitment and sacrifice hmm. and with your partner. So with my partner, we committed to certain goals. And our only goal, our only goal in 2016 was to do one competition together and to take some cool pictures afterwards. Yeah. We just we we wanted to get in the best shape of our lives, take get a snapshot and be done with it. That was it. That was the only goal we had was to do it together, right? So that was our commitment to each other. And then we knew through that process we would have to sacrifice. Sacrifice something, sacrifice time together, sacrifice um, one, maybe when, when I'm, I'm used to cutting the grass, maybe she cuts the grass while I'm at the gym. Uh, instead of us eating together, uh, maybe we prepare dinner for the family and then one of us will have, you know, we'll have, we'll, we'll have dinner with, with the family while the other is doing is preparing for her doctorate. So we decided to commit and then we also committed to sacrifice. Right. Um, so we did that together, but we, we knew we had a short period of time because we had an end date. So it didn't last forever. We had we decided to to uh, to do this competition on a specific date. Before just before that, I shared a before and after picture with one of my squadron mates uh, during my military duty, and he 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 was inspired and he encouraged me to share it publicly. And it was a picture, a side by side picture. I think I've you've seen it. Oh, yeah. Of my son with my right hand over his shoulder when I was heavy, or my left hand over his shoulder when I was heavy, and then a, a year or two later, uh, with my just so happens with my same hand over his shoulder, uh, and when I'm in shape, it looks like I aged backwards. Yeah, he got older. Right. And so that picture kind of went viral uh, when I decided to share it publicly, and that was the first time I'd ever shared what I was doing. Right. And people. The social media and the public, the the people that reached out to me, every one at least one person every day reached out to me, and and was told me how they were inspired by me, how they were, they asked a lot of questions on how they could do it too, and I realized that it was important for me to share my story, yeah, and that it wasn't it wasn't just about me, it was about now giving back, and finding ways to uh, teach other people and help them. Do what uh, do what Rob did for me. And I think that so one of the things I would say, because a lot of people might be saying, man, I want to get in shape. I want to do this stuff. We won't do a workout plan right here. I would say reach out to Rob. He this is what he does. So if you want to um, invest in yourself to work with somebody to get you in that type of shape, Team Giles, he's Team on Giles Fitness. Team Giles Fitness dot com. He's online. You can check him out and he'll, you know, you, you know, he, he runs it as a business. So you work with him and he'll provide you an opportunity to get in the kind of 
I have the opportunity to get in the kind of shape that Otis did. So I just want to be clear about that. So people who are asking like, man, how did you do it? Otis, how did you get in shape? How many push-ups did you do, man? Did you do a deadlift? Did you do a, a stomach right. crunch? Did you do a, the lateral bilab app move? What was it? You know, um, now, just, and that's, that's, yeah, it's, it's Giles with a G. Yeah. So. Rob, right. and we'll have the link in the show notes, but just so people who are, who are actually trying to get in that place do that. Um, but what I, what I want to kind of focus on too with you is, is this thing, people, people sometimes say they went viral and what they mean is all their cousins and Pookie and them looked at the picture and, and reached out to them. When we're saying you went viral, this thing resulted in, first of all, you won a competition that ended up getting you into the Mr. Olympia competition. You could talk about that. But then you also ended up being um, doing some stuff with men's fitness um, mm-hmm. and, and being in, the, in, the, in, that, in that arena and, and all sorts of other opportunities. So bullet through if you could. What are some of the things that as a result of you working hard and yep. this going well, what are some of the things that ended up coming out of that piece that you were able to experience? Yeah. So now that we laid the foundation, I can fast forward a little bit. So 2016, I figured out how to do all this stuff. I, I aligned my family and fitness and I entered into a couple more competitions. I ended up doing winning the overall on each one of them. I kept winning, kept winning, kept winning. So you were this, beating the young dudes. <laughs> that's right. I was. So I'm 39 years old now. I'm beating all these, all the young guys and, and some of the old, all the old guys too. And, uh, in the summer of 2016, uh, was when a lot of things changed. So my kids said, dad, you, you ought to enter into this competition that we saw in a magazine. I said, well, what's the competition guys? They said, it's a, it's a men's health magazine called the ultimate guy. And it's a competition that is for a guy that's, that's fit that inspires and a guy that gives back. And so I looked at the parameters of the competition and it was, you had to submit three pictures and answer five questions about your life. I submitted my name and I forgot about it um, for about a couple weeks because I had in July, I had another, a big competition, another men's physique competition that, that would allow me if I won it to turn pro and to be a pro athlete. So I submitted my name uh, for the competition or for the uh, for the magazine, and I entered into the men's physique competition. I won the competition. I turned pro, and I was good. I was done. Uh, I, then <laughs> a lot of this stuff happened at once, and and then I I went from uh, seven hundred and some guys in the in the magazine competition to top one hundred, uh, and then. I went from top 100 to top 10. Yeah, that's when I started voting for you. Right. <laughs> and then I ended up in top three yeah. of, the mag- of the magazine. So once you get to the top three, they fly you to New York. And you do this because uh, whoever wins the competition gets to be on the cover of Men's Health Magazine, which is the, the largest men's fitness magazine in the world. Yeah. Uh, so that's August. And uh so we go up there for the for the photo shoot and we we shoot the pictures and we have a great time and, and they get they they hear my story which is the expand or the shortened version of what I'm I'm telling you. Um, but in the meantime, a couple of weeks prior to that, after I turned pro, uh, I entered into my first pro show. So it would be like uh, being the top top dog in in the NCAA in football and then going into the NFL. Yeah. But instead of going into the NFL. Uh, going straight to the playoffs in the NFL. I went straight to the playoffs. One, I won my pro show. 
So the pro show is all these guys have been pros for years and years and years. My very first show, I win the whole thing. <laughs> That's crazy. So it's this is I'm competing again against 25, 26, 27, 35 year olds. I'm 39. I win everything. And I, I want to say for the record too, like you were doing this clean, you know, like with no Barry Bond stuff going on here. You right. were no no extra help, no steroids, no drug, no nothing. So I just just straight sweat, hard work, perseverance, and discipline. I win the show. I win the pro show. Whenever you win a pro show, you now qualify to compete in the Super Bowl of all fitness events called Mr. Olympia, and that's what Arnold Schwarzenegger won. Yeah, and that's what he Mr. Olympia. I get the, now the honor and t- to compete in Mr. Olympia in September of 2016 in Las Vegas. And I, I, so I ran into Rob at uh, another friend of ours, Giovanna. We had a birthday party for him down San, Di- San Diego. And uh-huh. we were talking about you during this time. And he was like, he's like, TQ, this just does not happen. Like <laughs> guys don't compete in one year. And all of a sudden they're doing Mr. Olympia like they're on a source. And they're like, you, your hard work and discipline took you to an extraordinarily high level. Now, for everyone else, your results may vary. But uh, but, they but, will the, <laughs> but the point is, is you excelled at an extremely high level. Yes. And, and so at this point, TQ, I think it's important for the listeners to to understand there was, yes, I made the physical transformation, but this moment where I applied to the magazine and put the inspirational paper and they actually publicized it, uh, your step three, that's when I realized, hmm, this, this is, this is actually much more transformative than I thought. And they started to, uh, play off of each other. So, the Olympias came out and started – the competition was in September. The men's, the men's Health magazine, we shot the cover in August. The, we didn't know who was going to get the cover until October. Wow. So in September, I did Mr. Olympia. I was I had one of the top 40 physiques in the world. I didn't win Mr. Olympia, but I was in it. I competed, and uh, I can have that title forever, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so that was mid-September. In October, uh, I went on the, the Today Show with the other two contestants who are awesome guys as well. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't make the cover. But they featured me in the, uh, in the magazine, and I was on the Today Show uh, to unveil the, the, uh, the, the magazine, which was no, it came out in November of 2016. From that magazine, and we'll go fast forward a little bit, from that magazine, uh, which was out on stands for 30 days prior to Christmas – I generated a lot of interest. My my social media kind of exploded and people reached out to me quite a bit to ask uh, how they could do it. And my time, I I love helping people, but I realized that in order for me to help people, I needed to create a medium to do so. That also didn't, uh, that allowed me to continue working on my goals. And so that's when I created a website. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, And I didn't have the money to pay someone to create a what I considered a professional website. So my son, one of my sons, one of my four sons is pretty computer savvy. So new year's between Christmas and new year's, he and I took the time to learn how to do some coding and we built a website. Um, and it's called Otis Hooper. It's just my name, Otis And I list all this, some of the things that I did about goal setting, uh, some of my journey, uh, some of the workouts that I do, uh, then what I had next. And so 
what I found was it wasn't for me that in order to continue to continue to grow, I needed to continue to challenge myself. Right. And I think this is really important for for folks that as they achieve one one level of success uh, to continue to challenge themselves to continue growing because through that process you, you're growing and I want to continue to grow because I enjoy the process. And so my kids, my sons go, Dad, uh, you're you know we're walking outside one day and and I'm encouraging them to to continue playing and, and get off the computer, get off the get off the video games, and get outside and play. I said, man, back in the day when I was when I was little, I used to do flips on off of picnic tables and running out in the streets. And I'm like, Dad, you're you're too big to do a flip. You can't you can't do a flip. And I said, oh. and so I kicked my my shoes off and I ended up doing a backflip off of <laughs> off of a picnic table. Oh my goodness! And they said, Dad, you ought to try out for American Ninja Warrior. Yeah, it's crazy. I said, well, uh, I'm not. I said, I've seen it couple you know for a few minutes and i turn it off and they said dad it's a cool show and they explained to me the show and they said you you got to apply by january 1st um of, of 2016 or 2017 i said okay i'll consider it in the meantime uh, i decided to stretch myself and to stretch my goals and try to progress by doing by competing in and completing an Ironman triathlon and i so just so people know uh what does an Ironman triathlon consist of well, it's, it's three events. It's swimming, biking, and running. How far do you do each? Yep. So the swim is 2.4 miles, and that you have a time limit. You can you have to complete the swim in two hours and 20 minutes, and it's in open water. So that means either in a lake or out in the ocean, hmm. uh, which is very different than a pool. Uh, and then you get off this, you finish the swim, uh, and then you get on a bike, and you bike for 112 miles. Wow. That you have a time limit of eight hours on a bike, uh, and then you get off the bike and you complete a marathon oh, 20, 20, 26.2 miles of running all at one time in one day. Oh my gosh, that I think it's in 17 or 18 hours. There's a time limit in order to be considered an Ironman. And just so people know, um, so the Air Force Academy is a place where you are generally the only brother in a room if you're in a class. You're generally the only brother. The only class that's full of brothers is the basic swimming class. <laughs> now, the basic swimming class is like there's the regular swimming because you got to be able to swim to be in the military. But if you can't swim at all to get you just to know the, the basics of it, the, the fundamentals so you don't die in the water, they got the basic swimming class for the guys that can't swim. That class was always full of brothers right there. Yep. It was. And I it saw was. your first swimming uh, lesson on, on Instagram, and it looked like you were still in the basic swimming class, splashing around in the water. Struggling. So it, I'll tell you, it was, I'm like, you know, I, I figured, man, 2016 was, I, I kind of mastered strength. I said, well, what's the opposite of strength? Well, it's endurance, in my opinion. It was endurance. So I said, well, I wonder if I can do the ultimate test of endurance. And that, to me, was an Ironman triathlon. And so, the most I had swam was just swimming in the kiddie pool with my kids, man. I mean, really, I had never really the most. Well, really, the most I had swam was at the academy. Uh, and then as far as biking goes, the most I had biked was on a Huffy around the neighborhood with my kids. Right. The most I had run was a 5K, a 3.1 mile race, uh, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago. So I had no business <laughs> entering into an Ironman or training for one. Bananas. 
but I knew I knew I needed a goal that was scary enough to get me to give everything I had, just like that standing on stage on that very first men's physique competition. Uh, so part of the inspiration came from one of my Air Force Academy classmates who had cancer five years prior. He had stage four cancer and he beat the cancer um, with chemotherapy and and he ended up running an Ironman and completing an Ironman in New Zealand on the five-year anniversary of his last chemo treatment. Wow. And this guy is an F-15 pilot and one of my best friends. And I said, Joel, is it possible for me to train for an Ironman in five months with no training whatsoever and never completing a triathlon? He said, it is possible if you give everything that you are capable of giving. Right. And I said, if it's possible, I'm going to try it. And so I literally Googled beginner triathlete Ironman. Yeah. And a training plan popped up, a 20-week training plan, five week, five months. So I, I looked at the very, I said, all right, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it immediately. I want the very first Ironman competition. It was April 22nd, 2017. It was in Houston, Texas. I backtracked five months because it was a 20-week plan. My training plan started, I think it was on December 5th, something like that. So I used the month of, and I looked at the plan and it scared the, you know what, out of me. It scared me. And I'm like, man, there's no way in the world I could do this. But I got to try. I've already committed to my friend who beat cancer and did an Ironman right. that I'm going to do it and I'm going to honor what he did and what the struggle that he went through again. So I'm making it greater than myself. And so I said, well, all right, in the month of November, I'm going to try to learn how to swim in open, uh, well, just the, the, the process and the technique of learning how to do a basic, uh, complete the first, the first, uh, event, which was swimming. So I started with nothing. I just got in the pool. I videotaped myself swimming because I knew in my mind I would complete it. And I wanted to have a record because no one would believe me. So I videotaped myself swimming. It was scary, as you saw, right? And somebody in Dubai, out in Dubai, saw the video. And this guy is a uh, world champion swimmer. Yeah. He saw him struggling in the water. And he reached out to me on social media and said, dude, I've seen your story. I would love to for you to join my free swimming program. It starts November 1st. I posted <laughs> the video October 28th. Oh, my gosh. Three days prior, he saw me in Dubai and said, I'd love for you to join our free training program. All he did was, just like Rob, he provided an outline of training. It was up to me to do the, do the work. Yeah. For 30 days in the month of November, I followed his plan. And I learned the basics of swimming. I got confident and I started to feel like, okay, I, I learned the basics. I can actually do the first few weeks of swimming in this 20-week plan. And I stayed with his plan, but I started my 20-week plan on my own. And in the month of November, before I really got into my Ironman, I found out that my son, one of my sons, had type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. He was type 1 diabetes. And, so, and what does that mean for the lay person who doesn't know what type 1 diabetes is? So there's two types of diabetes, uh, type one and type two. Type two is is what you normally think of when you kind of let your health go and you're not able to, and your health kind of declines to the point of uh, where you need to get back a hold of it and and eat better and get your sugar levels in your body to to normal levels. 
type one is normally diagnosed in kids, juvenile diabetes. Yeah. And it's your pancreas fails mm. and your pancreas creates insulin. So it's not anything that he could control. It was going to fail at some point in his life. It's genetic. Uh, so his pancreas failed at thir- 13 years old. And uh, now his body no longer is able to produce insulin. Wow. So anytime he eats anything with carbs, which everything really has carbs in it, um, orange juice has carbs in it, banana, healthy food has carbs in it. Anytime he eats any food, he has to give himself, administer himself a shot afterwards that has insulin in it because his pancreas does not produce insulin. Mm. So he has to limit his limit his carb intake, which is was for a 13 year old is extremely uh, shocking, you know, because it changes his life. Now he's got to walk around with the with uh, insulin and he's got to be aware. He's got to do calculations. Um, and it was it was really a disruptive to what he knew uh, as normal life. But what for me, the way I was able to really tie it in was I wanted him to not think of his diet, which now is carb limited, not think of his diet as a, a diet for kids with problems. But I wanted him to think of his 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 diet, his new diet now as the diet of an elite athlete. Yeah. And because TQ in men's physique, it's, we limit our carbs. So for a year and a half, almost two years, I had been limiting my carbs uh, and not even knowing I was learning about my body, learning about carb limitation, maybe to serve him. Mm. So help him get through his transition of understanding and learning how to deal with type 1 diabetes. Wow. So I decided and committed to him, I'm going to have the same diet as you, Isaiah, for the next five months. I'm going to limit my carbs while I go through Ironman training. Wow. It's kind of crazy, actually, because carbs give you fast energy in order to compete in these long distance um, races and training. So I limited my carbs to near zero uh, on certain training days. Uh, and I trained that way. Yeah. It was painful. It was very painful. Um, but uh, I started to progress. I, I started swimming better. Um, the swimming was the hardest part for me. Uh, because it was brand new. I, you know, we spend most of our time out outside of water, but I was now underwater trying to swim and progress forward. And there were every day I wanted to quit <laughs> every single day, Yeah. but didn't quit because it was not about me anymore. It was now about my son. And I committed to him that I would, that I would, um, complete the Ironman for him in the swim on the bike. I'm getting on the bike. I didn't have a bike. These bikes are expensive. Yeah. But my friend who had cancer saw me trying on my own in Thanksgiving. He let me borrow his bike to train on and race. So now when I'm riding the bike, I am riding a bike of a cancer survivor and a man who completed an Ironman five months after five years after he completed chemo. Wow. So I am now inspired to complete and go through the pain of a 112 mile bike ride because I'm riding the bike of my friend who beat cancer and the run. I reached out to all the folks that were on social media that were really pushing me and motivating me and inspiring me. I, I dedicated my run and the, and the marathon to them. So I found a way to not make it about me and to make it about everyone else. And specifically my son 
my friend, and then uh, the folks that were on social media to follow me. Five months later, I competed in the Ironman, and uh, I completed it in 13 hours and 29 minutes. Jeez. And uh, most people uh, do a triathlon, and they, there's four levels of a triathlon. The Ironman is the, is the final level. <laughs> yeah. Usually you do a sprint. That'd be like a one-mile fun run. You kind so of you ease do, your way into it. It, it. The whole thing takes an hour. Then there's a, an Olympic distance that's uh, a, a little bit longer. That usually takes two or three hours. Then there's the half Ironman, so it's half the distances. And then there's the fourth level, which is the Ironman. I jumped straight into an Ironman, never having done a triathlon in my life. Wow. Uh, but I was able to do it because I it was it was not about me. I made it a, a purpose uh, greater than myself. Hmm. You know, I think um, part of the part of my hope for this show and the movement that I want to create is one that I see that cultures or groups or people who achieve at an extraordinarily high level, they do it as part of a, co- a collective effort of a a village, if you will, or a team or, or a unit that supports the success of that individual. And in the right. context of that unit, there may be several people who succeed, you know, mm-hmm. like if you think about, you know, when we were at the academy, we always showed the movie when we were in charge of basic training. The movie we would show during basic training was um, either Red Tails, it became after a while, or the mm-hmm. Tuskegee Airmen movie, because we wanted to because we were black guys and that was our way of saying, Hey, we contributed to the history of the air force too. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's amazing about that is that in groups like that, where they're together cohesively trying to accomplish a big goal, many of them can have high levels of success. So for this show, what my hope is, is that it creates a whole collective and a group and a movement of folks who, whatever your arena you're in, whether it's fitness like you or banking or being in the medical field or nonprofit organizations that if together we're kind of looking at each other saying, I see someone else succeed. That's publicizing the success stories. Here are the ways that you can succeed. That's how we teach other people to have their own success and in ignoring the haters, which I'm sure you had to face many of them, people who were against you being able to succeed um, in different ways. If we can do that collectively, lots of us can succeed on a high level and I'm saying that because it's obvious that your story is that you're pulling people in to say we're in this together. And that collective motivation is what's pushing you to extraordinary levels of success. I mean, I can't overestimate how the stuff you're doing with your body, people just don't do it. And you weren't naturally built to be an Ironman triathlete, to win the, these fitness competitions, to be on the cover of the Men's Health magazine. You drove yourself to do it. But what I think we often do in the minority community is we try to do it on our own. We try to be the lone soldier or we're in environments where we are the lone soldier. So we feel like we have to do it alone. And what you're showing time after time after time is that if you make it about a group of us doing it together and that's possible through social media, it's possible through uh, offline reaching out to one another like you did with Rob, like you did with your friend who's a cancer survivor to push yourselves collectively to have success. That's what I hope to create that community that allows us to create success together. Absolutely. CQ. And, and oftentimes you don't, it's hard to believe that you can do something that seems so far away until you see somebody else achieve similar success. And you say, man, he did it. Maybe I could do it. Maybe not necessarily in that arena 
And maybe that's not even what I want to achieve. Yeah. But during the, throughout the process, just like getting in shape, throughout the process, you may learn something about yourself that is the missing link to whatever it is your dream was that has nothing to do with fitness or nothing to do with uh, whatever it is that you wanted to maybe replicate in that other individual. Uh, but it's about trying and starting uh, and starting down, down, a, down a process uh, and being open and vulnerable to, uh, to allowing other, other positive influences to come in and, and direct you and guide you. But it, none of this would have ever happened had I not asked for help. Yeah. Yeah. That's big, man. I, um, I wanted to, to, to talk through a couple of other things that, that we always try to hit. And one of those is, um, what about mentors? Obviously Rob is a mentor to you. Um, who are some other important mentors that you've had in your life and in your career that have helped you get to where you are? Well, I've kind of alluded to it. Um, my father and mother were extremely important uh, laying that foundation early on. Uh, watching and observing my father uh, try to run his own business while raising us uh, was very important. Uh, and my mother on the other on the other side was was more of a uh, focused on more of the, of the development of, of trying to be empathetic and, and, and pull in the emotional side. So the balance of those two together, uh, my mother and father, uh, were extremely important for mentors and I still reach out to them, um, for mentorship. When I now on a professional level, some of the mentors that I have, some of the best mentors that I have are peers, uh, some of my peers that are actually doing some pretty amazing things. And I try to learn kind of how you're setting up now uh, from their success and their failures. And the great thing about uh, and, and I'm fortunate because a lot of these guys are willing to share with me some of their failures. And that allows me not to have to make those same mistakes uh, and learn from their lessons, uh, from their lessons learned. Um, so I would say, you know, for me, it's it's my peer group, uh, and peers meaning folks that are in front of me, folks that are better maybe in my right behind me, and then and then my own peers, uh, and then my parents. What um, throughout the course of your career, can you think of any times where you've had to deal with or face bias um, or any kind of discrimination as a minority, and and how were you able to overcome that? Well, you know, I've thought about this question. I've, I've been asked this question uh, in the past before. And, you know, I'm so <laughs> – the environments that I've been in at the Air Force Academy um, being like, – like we said, usually there's 30 or 40 graduating, tra- graduating African-Americans in a class of 1,000, pilot training, one of 20 um, as an Air Force pilot, a black Air Force pilot, um, very low numbers. Uh, I'm, I've, I've become accustomed to being in an environment like that. And as I've alluded to the, the thing that I can control is me. That's the most important thing that I can control is me. I'm so focused on, on trying to be better and trying to learn from others that I, I do everything that I can to ignore the haters. So if there is discrimination happening to me, um, I ignore it because it, it, 
I'm the only thing I'm focused on is what I can control. How are you able to ignore it? Like some people get caught up in it, like whether it's mm-hmm. subtle jabs. And, and in my opinion, uh, hopefully I don't hurt anybody's feelings with this, but there's a like there's almost there are legit situations where people get discriminated against that are hurtful. At the same time, there is almost this way that people are like raising the volume of subtle forms of discrimination that give them more impact than I feel like they should have. So how are you able to do the opposite where you kind of turn the volume on those things down and not let yourself be affected by them? The way I do it is through action. So it's one thing to talk about it, but at the end of a a discussion and and talk is great and conversation is great. uh, But what do we do at the end of those conversations? What do we do when we, we hang the phone up, what are you going to do about it? So I, I love having those conversations, but the most effective and impactful thing that I can do is, is act. Yeah. And through my action, it's, it's either publicized or I have a, now a platform to speak just like you and I are speaking. We wouldn't be speaking if I wasn't an, uh, an Olympian, an Ironman, American Ninja Warrior, a men's physique pro. Because of my action, I now have the platform to speak. And it starts with all of us taking action. If you are passionate about something and you want to change, change, make the change and start with yourself. Then through action, you'll have a you'll create a platform and you may not even know what that platform is yet. Uh, If you want to start a charity or if you want to work with 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 kids, whatever that case may be, I've I've found that uh, focusing everything you have on on yourself and and just living the best version of yourself is a way almost to ignore the haters because hmm. you, you block the noise, you block the volume, and then you get to create your own channel and you can turn that volume up as high as you want. So if, if negativity is coming towards you, um, however aggressively it may be coming, because like for the person who keeps getting passed over for a certain position at their job or for the person who has to deal with subtle comments that exist in their um, peer group, you're saying focus on a bigger goal and push toward that action. Is that right? Yes. Yes. But be undeniably great Mm. at whatever you are doing. If you, if you are a pilot, be the best pilot ever in your squadron. If you are a men's physique pro, be standing on or a men's physique guy, stand on stage and no one can touch you. That was my mentality. I don't want anybody to be able to touch me or even to come close to me. I'm undeniably great. And in that case, or if I'm if you are a salesman, if you're selling a product, be able to sell anything. Be great at being a salesperson. You can you you you're undeniable. So when you are undeniable, then you have a, you create your own platform and you create your own channel. What do you say to the people who say, well, man, it's always we got to work twice as hard to get half as much. Like, I, I hate that reality. What do you say to that person who would respond to you saying being great with that? I would say deal with reality. Live, accept what it is, is real. If you if you think that you have to work twice as hard, then work three times harder. I mean, do you, are, are, I guess my, my question to that person is, what are you what is the goal? Yeah, is the work half as hard so that you can so that you can now be successful is that the end of is that the the end of the conversation is i hope to now be able to work half as hard uh so that i can equal the playing field no the playing field may not be fair 
look around, look at the playing field. That's the rules of the game. If you don't like the rules, go find a different game. Yeah. The game is life. And that's what we're dealt with. Life, this is the set of rules that we as a group of people have right now. If we got to work twice as hard, then work three times harder so that you can stand above and beyond the rest and be undeniably great. Yeah, man, I, I'm feeling you. And I and for the people who may be um, frustrated or daunted by that, I don't have the resources. That's what we're here to do. Over time, we're going to develop the resources to help you get to wherever you want to be and succeed in whatever the case may be. And if success mm-hmm. is your goal, I love that advice, man. Just If you have to work twice as hard, work three times as hard. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to give three books as a gift, what would they be? Uh, three books as a gift. Um, I'll start with books that I give to my, my children. Uh, I've given, given this book to each one of my boys cause it was given to me when I was a kid, um, is, uh, Jonathan Livingston, Livingston Seagull. Uh, and it's a book about leadership, but written, uh, that's easily digestible and, really kind of lays a foundation for not being afraid to uh, follow your heart, uh, execute at the highest level, and then give back at some point when you're able to. Um, probably the second one would be uh, a book I'm reading now, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, it really talks about branding, and it's kind of a, a, a compilation of uh, successful people in general and some of their, their greatest lessons learned, uh, in three or four pages, uh, put, put together, um, in a kind of an encyclopedia of lessons learned for, for greats. And then finally, um, (laughs) a book named called flawless execution. Hmm. And that happens to be a company written by the, the CEO of a company that I'm working for now. And it's interesting because I did not realize, but the way I approach, I try to approach uh, these these athletic events uh, is the method called flawless execution. And the CEO has created a company called Afterburner that scaled it to businesses. And so he teaches, we teach, and now I teach uh, ways to uh, accomplish what I've accomplished on a, on an individual level uh, to Fortune 500 companies. Hmm. Man, I I think I want to make that a whole nother conversation, man, when we get together again, because that it sounds like there's a lot of interesting nuggets to be pulled from that. Oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, I do. So I do see that you're a type of person who plans when something comes up, you got something, a way to make it happen, whether it's fitness or, or the triathlon or dealing with your son's health. Um What's next for you, Otis? Uh, well, uh, let's see. So I've already I've started planning for for 2018, and it's exciting. Uh, some of the things that we've got uh, coming up. So last year, through all this process, um, I got a, an opportunity to, to to play in a few movies. So I've had some significant roles in in a few movies here in Atlanta. Now you're a, you you turn into an actor on top of all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I got the chance to play uh, an LAPD detective in a movie called Den of Thieves. And it comes out in January of 2018. That's bananas, man. Like, what, <laughs> what in the world is going on over there in Atlanta, Otis? You're doing it really big, man. So uh, being on set with and so the actors, the, 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 the main actors are Gerard Butler and 50 Cent in the movie. Crazy. 
Well, I'm standing in in a couple of different scenes with with Gerard Butler and Fifty Cent, and what was amazing to me was to see them transform emotionally into a character. Yeah. Uh, on set, and that was extremely fascinating to me. What made you want to do acting? I didn't want to. It it called me. A producer, a movie producer, um, uh, heard about me through several different folks and I got a call and I was asked if I wanted to be in a movie. I said, well, what kind of movie? What, what kind of movie? <laughs> you are a good looking brother too. So that does help. <laughs> and so I said, sure, absolutely. So I, I came down to Atlanta, was on set for a few weeks, shot, shot my scenes and uh, it was amazing. And I explored that and I'm not an actor. So I said, well, shoot, I, I'm going to take some classes. Yeah. So I took months of acting classes while I was training for the triathlon. You took how many, would you say? Two months. Okay. Two months of acting classes during my triathlon training. Bananas. Oh, and American Ninja Warrior training. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and okay. Ninja Warrior. Okay, just that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it was ama- It felt it was awesome. And I said, well, shoot, 2016 was the year of, of strength. I kind of mastered strength. 2017, this year, has been the year of endurance with Ninja Warrior and the triathlon. I'd like to really explore mastering myself in 2018. And I felt that, I think that maybe acting is the way to do it. So I've uh, started taking a little, few more classes and, and I got an agent and uh, we'll see where that goes. But in the meantime, uh, I want to continue to challenge myself physically. Hmm. So I've committed to climbing Mount Kilimanjaro uh, in Africa hmm. in January of 2018. And I'm not only going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, but I'm going to do it with that cancer survivor, Joel Need, hmm. so an academy graduate. Right. And I'm going to try to raise money for juvenile diabetes uh, through my efforts in the process. Very nice. So that's that's uh, that's on the agenda, and then a few other a few other uh, fun things that I've got planned um, before and and after that uh, that'll hopefully. Uh, all per, all play into uh, into into staying fit and continuing to challenge myself. Yeah, I think um, this is my so my scary thing that I did publicly was get started with this this show or this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about it for a while, but I committed to it and said a lot about it publicly, so I can't turn back now or it'd be very <laughs> extraordinarily embarrassing and publicly embarrassing. <laughs> um, but now I'm getting it done and. The other thing, man, is the a reason why I did not want to interview you is because I had to think about how to step up my physical fitness and situation. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I feel like I look all right. My, my wife loves how I look. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but I do think I want to commit to getting my fitness together better. So, man, we're going to have to talk and, and you give me a couple of tips or maybe I'll, I'll connect with Rob as well to get my. I ain't trying to be in no competition, okay? And my that's shirt, what they all say. my See, shirt only saying. comes off for of my wife. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. But uh, but I want to get it tight. You know, I want I want to get it tight. Yep. And what you just said is exactly what I said. Two years ago. <laughs> you just said I just you just want to get it tight. Just do better. Just just feel better. And that's it. That was literally what you just said is exactly how I started. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a willingness to to want to do better. And knowing you're not an expert at fitness, so knowing who to ask. That's yeah, man. It. 
Yeah, man, that's it. Well, what do you um, what do you do for fun, man? Like, I hope I didn't just eat, you know, <laughs> seaweed kelp sandwiches and stuff oh, like that. Like, <laughs> well, first of all, I, 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 having four kids, anybody that's a the parent out there uh, knows knows when you have kids, the whole everything changes. So, uh, shoot, man, whatever whatever my boys are into, they're always challenging me. So, uh, shoot, even this weekend, we went to we went to uh, trampoline park, Sky Zone. Uh, we're on trampolines for two and a half hours, uh, jumping around. Uh, they're now doing backflips in the backyard, mm. uh, going on bike rides around the neighborhood. Uh, just, just hanging out, man, hanging out. My wife and I, uh, we try to do, um, at least, at least once a month, we'll go on a, uh, on a date, on an intentional date. And we'll try to set up things on, on, uh, during the week to go out, uh, hang out with friends, go to movies. Um, no, it's not, it's not all about, eating chicken and rice and broccoli. It's not that, um, it's just about balance, you know, and, and working a, a, a way to stay fit and healthy, uh, into that balanced life. Yeah. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm a normal dude. That's, I, th- I think that's what's, what's kind of cool about having a, a background. Like you and I know, we know each other. We've known each other for over 20 years now. Right. And uh, I think that a lot of our, our buddies and our classmates, no, I'm a normal guy. I'm not, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I think that's kind of the the draw is that it's exciting because um, anybody can do it. Anybody can change their life. Anybody can make a massive improvement uh, and a dent in their lifelong goals if you just are intentional about it and ask for help. Try to align your family, your friends, uh, and and approach it. Uh, and give a hundred percent in whatever it is you're doing. Very nice, man. Well, um, where can people find you online if they want to? Well, the easiest way is, is, uh, is my website, Otis Hooper.com. O T I S H O O P E R.com. And then I'm, I'm connect and they, and they, they can connect through social media outlets. I'm mostly on Instagram, but I've started to uh, transition some things over to, uh, to LinkedIn as well. So my Instagram and Twitter handles are team Hooper six, uh, T E A M H O O P R six. Uh, that's on Instagram and Twitter. Cool. I'll I'll put the, we'll put all these links in the show notes. Um, Otis, man, it's been a a great pleasure with you. And my guest today has been Otis Hooper. Thanks for having me on TQ. It's been a pleasure.